there is no such thing as a successful betting system, but that does not stop people believing that around the corner is someone who has one. It's a shame, it's a scandal, it's a big story, and it put a spotlight square on Bill Vlahos and his schemes. The amazing thing is, it lasted as long as it did. I'm Andrew Rule, and this is Life and Crimes. This week, with the Spring Racing Carnival around the corner, we'd like to have a bit of a look at Bill Vlahos, the man that this newspaper dubbed Dollar Bill. The story of Dollar Bill is not the usual crime tragedy that leaves dead people and injured people in its wake. The people who were Bill Vlahos's victims, to some extent, brought it on themselves. And you'd have to say no one died, although a lot of people must have felt that they were going to die of embarrassment when they found out that they'd shoveled so much money at a man who was throwing it away. So where does it start, the tricky story of Dollar Bill? Well, pick a point, it's uh, anyone's guess, but the first time the public really saw his name was a fleeting reference to him as a buyer of an expensive young racehorse called Pillars of Hercules back in 2007. Now, Pillars of Hercules was a valuable thoroughbred colt. He was owned by some people connected with the Mockbell family, and the authorities came to the conclusion that the people whose names were in the race book may well have been patsies or fronts for one or more of the Mockbell brothers, that is, Tony's brothers, Haughty, specifically. And so the racing authorities, in their wisdom, used their power to force a public auction of the cult Pillars of Hercules. And they did this so that the horse could be sold on and uh, owned by more legitimate people and therefore remove a stain or a potential stain from racing's reputation. And so they ran an auction one morning in 2007 and the person or people who supposedly bought the horse at auction was one Bill Vlahos and another man called Joe Zeta. Now, it turns out that Joe Zeta had a bit of form. Joe Zeta was, in fact, a convicted cocaine importer, and therefore it was an interesting sale in many ways because it, apparently the horse had gone out of the control of one family of crooks and into another. Vlahos would later claim that he only owned the horse for a couple of days before moving it on. And this may or may not be true. Because, of course, a lot of what Bill Vlahos said was not true. Although when he said it, everyone wanted to believe him. Now, it turns out that three years later in 2010, the Sunday Herald Sun, a newspaper that breaks many good stories, had a story about a high-level betting syndicate that was in fact allegedly a sham and a scandal And the story said that it involved many, many high-level investors who stood to lose a lot of money. Now, these were serious allegations to make. And in fact, lawyers' letters were written and threats were made. And the story eventually was run, but without naming any names, which was a good way to get a true story in print without risking massive legal repercussions. That alone should have been enough warning for those people who were involved with Bill Vlahos. In 2010, word was getting around racing circles 
that Bill Vlahos, this still relatively unknown man, was running a betting rort where he would encourage people to invest, and I use that word advisedly, in his betting system. Now, anybody that talks about betting systems is basically trying to sell you a pig and a poke because there really is no such thing as a betting system that works. The only thing that works is either absolute good luck, which of course won't last, or some sort of illegal insider trading, which would involve race fixing of some sort. And there are those mathematical geniuses who arbitrage betting by investing huge amounts to make very slim margins. Beyond that, there is no such thing as a successful betting system, but that does not stop people believing that around the corner is someone who has one. Hope springs eternal in the human breast. There's no doubt that that story in 2010, although it did not actually name Vlahos, must have thrown a scare into him and those people who were investing with him. Vlahos knew that there's always a way to get some people to put greed ahead of caution. And what he did was come up with something pretty smart. What he did was to say that his betting system, which he called The Edge, was a secret operation. He asked people not to tell others. He promoted an air of exclusivity so that people felt they were in on something that other people didn't know about. And that, of course, made it seem special. He made it seem to be the club that, you know, you weren't supposed to be able to to join and therefore you really wanted to join it. That was one clever psychological trick. The other one was this, that he started up a thing very publicly called BC3 Thoroughbreds. Now, the initials BC came from, I think, Black Caviar. The three, I'm not sure what that's about, but it doesn't matter. BC3 Thoroughbreds notionally ran on the theory that he had imported experts from America who had successfully, allegedly, pin-hooked young horses in America and resold them. Now, pin-hooking, briefly, is the craft of buying young horses, such as weanlings, and growing them up and selling them for much more money. And people who are very good at it can do it. And Vlahos believed that he'd found or promoted the idea that he'd found a couple of guys in America who were very good at doing it. And he brought them out here and he used to waltz around to sales with these guys and uh, they stood out quite a bit, they made quite a splash and they gradually bought more and more expensive young horses and they moved from weanlings rapidly up into yearlings which of course are the, the big money item and the more money that Bill Vlahos and BC3 were seen to be spending at the sales the more confident that the mug punters were that he must be investing very well on the punt, that he must be winning a lot of money on the punt. Of course, the reality was this was an illusion. The reality was that the money that Bill Vlahos was spending on young horses at the horse sales was money that he took directly from gullible people who were throwing it at him to gamble on his so-called system. It's the classic Ponzi scheme of robbing Peter to pay Paul. The amazing thing is, it lasted as long as it did. It was in fact BC3 Thoroughbreds and Vlahos's emerging status as a buyer at the major yearling sales in Australia that drew him 
to my attention. And back in 2013, one of my then colleagues, the then um, chief racing writer of the Herald Sun, Matthew Stewart, came to me and said, I don't really know what this guy's up to, but it's strange and it's weird and it doesn't really stand examination. He's paying a fortune for young horses. History shows us that if you pay a fortune for young horses, you must go broke eventually, unless you're terribly lucky, and uh, there's something weird about it. And I took this on board, and I was interested to note that earlier that year, Bill Vlahos had really reached for the stars. And what he'd done, he'd made a very public play of the fact that he intended to bid for the younger brother of the then world champion sprinter, Black Caviar. And unlike most buyers, most of us who are going to buy something at auction keep our intentions quiet. We don't go along to the house sale or the car sale or the horse sale and flag that we're about to spend a lot of money because obviously the auctioneer would then keep looking at you and have other people running you up to push you up into a high, higher and higher price bracket. So the prudent buyer never flags their intentions or gives any indication of how high they will bid. This is only common sense, and your grandmother can tell you this. But the weird thing was that Bill Vlahos kept dropping broad hints that he was going to break all sorts of records to buy Black Caviar's younger brother. Now, this horse, being a yearling, didn't actually have a name. He was unregistered, as they all are at that age, and uh, he was nicknamed Jimmy. Now, Jimmy was very well-bred, and, of course, Jimmy if he were sound and well and everything else, would be worth quite a lot of money. Jimmy might have been worth, let's say, between two and three million, if he were sound. But Bill Vlahos, well before the sales, is making noises that he thinks, you know, this horse could bring as much as five million dollars. And this is strange behaviour, unless you look at it from the point of view of, of Bill Vlahos. What he was doing was waving a flag to all his so-called investors in his punting scheme, in the punting rort, the edge, as he called it, to say, look at me, look at me, I'm going so well with this punting scheme and punting so well and making so much money that I can afford to buy record-breaking yearlings. So what he was doing was deliberately putting up a massive smokescreen which actually was produced by burning a lot of other people's money. Now, this is the point at which I get very interested in Bill Vlahos, because even I, who's not particularly smart with money, not good at adding up, never much good at uh, doing my own tax or anything, I can see that there's a massive hole in the bucket here. There's something wrong. And in fact, I smell a massive rat. And I wrote a story in November 2013, which was nominally about Jimmy, the sad case of Jimmy, Black Caviar's little brother. And by this stage, Jimmy has developed a mysterious ailment. Jimmy, who made $5 million at the horse sales, at the Easter sales in Sydney, which are the premium sales in Australia, uh, he's been run up and run up, and then Bill Vlahos, as he predicted, buys him for $5 million. And we don't hear much about Jimmy for a little while, until it turns out that Jimmy is at the Werribee Equine Hospital later that year, where he is fighting for his life because he supposedly has been bitten by a white-tailed spider. 
Now, horses are vulnerable to bites. A snake can kill a great big horse much quicker than the same snake would kill a little old lady. If it bites it on the lip or somewhere, the venom gets into the bloodstream quickly. In fact, there are those who suggest that some people use snakes to kill horses that are insured for a lot of money, but that's a story for another day. It's true that spider bites can cause problems for horses and for people. They can be very bad things and give massive ulcers that are very hard to cure. The strange thing about the Jimmy case was it appeared that the treatment for the spider bite, for the supposed spider bite, were massive doses of antibiotics. And the suggestion is that the antibiotics gave the horse laminitis. And laminitis is a very serious hoof problem which can actually cripple a horse and render it useless for everything, including breeding, if it's a serious enough case. Now this was, you know, a 1 in 10,000 event and it happened to have struck down the $5 million yearling. And this made me think, what are the odds of this? That this wonderful yearling, so beautifully looked after and everything, that it would be struck down so randomly by a spider bite and then by the medicine that's been given it. I wrote a story about it in which I unkindly called the horse Jimmy Spiderbait. And it cast grave doubts on the entire sale process and whether Jimmy had in fact ever been worth the five million when the good judges had said he was worth two or three if he were sound. And when horse trainers had sent their vets in to look at Jimmy, nine out of ten vets had said, this horse is probably not sound enough to stand a preparation, don't buy him. Only one vet, and that was Bill Vlahos's vet, had said that it was worth taking a chance on this horse's legs standing a preparation. And so it seemed that this $5 million horse was in fact a crock from the start that every serious trainer in Australia had been warned against buying because he wasn't sound. So what's wrong with this picture? Bill Vlahos buys unsound, well-bred horse for twice or three times what it's worth. Well, it turns out that Jimmy hasn't actually been paid for that only a part of Jimmy's been paid for. It further turns out that Jimmy hasn't been insured, or at least not fully. And so a scandal erupts about the future of Jimmy and the suggestion that those people who have put in money to buy Jimmy might lose their money when the inevitable happens and Jimmy has to be put down, which is what happened. It's a shame. It's a scandal. It's a big... Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. Story, and it put a spotlight square on Bill Vlahos and his schemes. Now, that was in November 2013. On the 8th of December, merely a couple of weeks later, a very strange thing happened down at Bill Vlahos's 
farm property near Torquay at a place called Connie Worry, which is pasture long near Torquay. And he had this nice little training set up there. It was run, you know, in the name of BC3 Thoroughbreds. It's where they sent the young horses that they bought. They had staff working there to handle the young horses and exercise them and get them going before they sent them out to uh, trainers. And a very strange thing happened there on the uh, morning, I think, of the 8th of uh, December, and that was that a utility belonging to Bill Vlahos burst into flame. Now, it was a cool, wet day, and uh, the ute burnt, and in the ute, sadly, was the laptop containing all the records of BC3 Thoroughbreds and probably the Edge betting syndicate. Now, this probably was very convenient for Bill Vlahos because it wouldn't be good to have all those records being looked over by expert forensic accountants and fraud squad police and everyone else. And so it was terribly, terribly convenient. And when the police were called to the scene of this apparent arson, Bill Vlahos told them a very garbled story, which they didn't believe. First of all, he said that he'd been jumped that day by, you know, three Lebanese guys. And later in the morning, he's telling them that it was four Croatian guys. He couldn't get his story straight. It so happened that I was down that way. I was staying nearby and I heard about it that morning and I drove straight over to the property. And when I drove into the property, the scene was fresh. There was the ute burnt out and there sitting in the middle of the house yard was a yellow jerry can, a yellow plastic jerry can, clearly marked with a texter and it had something written on it like mower or tractor or something and clearly it was a jerry can that was used on the property and that wasn't a mere assumption because one of the staff members there and all these staff members didn't really know what was happening and they didn't know who was telling lies and who wasn't and when I rolled up and started asking questions, they answered them. And one of them said, oh, yeah, that's the jerry can out of the shed over there. We keep it there to fill the um, ride-on mower or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, I know I know the jerry can because there it's got stuff written on it and we use it every other day and so on and so forth. So clearly the jerry can of fuel that was used to torch Bill Vlahos's ute came from the property itself. And so Bill Vlahos's wild claim that he'd been jumped by unknown heavies who'd bashed him and knocked him about and then torched his ute looked more and more and more suspect and it would appear that the police's first instincts were right and that Bill's supposed injuries and torn clothes and things were undoubtedly self-inflicted he wasn't really knocked about much he might have you know punched himself in the eye and then rolled around in the dirt and banged his head on the ground but the police never believed it No one believed it. And that event blew up the entire Vlahos scandal. And from that day on, for probably two weeks, it was one of the biggest stories in racing because it involved so much money, so many horses, and so many people. And the fascinating thing about it was the long list of names of people who'd become involved. And this is the embarrassment factor. The thing about Vlahos is he was a con man and like all con men he was a, you know, a pleasant and likeable fellow to meet because if you're not pleasant and likeable you can't be a con man. It doesn't work. You have to get people's confidence, hence the word con. And what he'd done, Bill Vlahos 
persuaded people who didn't really know much about racing or much about betting. Now, a lot of people who have a bet actually know very little about betting. And I'm one of them. I don't mind having a bet, but I'm no expert about betting markets or anything else. A lot of people are like that. And what Bill had done was persuade people with quite deep pockets, some of them business people. One guy owned several supermarkets. Another was a prominent figure in the guests' furniture shops. Another one was a former Melbourne football club president and so on and so on and so on. He had encouraged dozens of fairly competent or very competent business people, people that had made money in other areas, to invest in his punting scheme because he knew that while they were good at running supermarkets or football clubs or something else, they didn't know that much about betting. And what they loved was that when Bill said, if you know, Bill said, give me 20 grand and at the end of the month I'll give you a 40% dividend, they loved it because quite often he did produce the dividend. He'd take 20 and give them back 28,000 at the end of the month. And of course, that was the way he hooked them in. He burlied the water like a fisherman and he gave them an easy kill by paying out certain people large amounts of money so that they got really keen and encouraged all their friends to come in. And what he did very cunningly, in my view, was go to things like country golf clubs, country sports clubs, football clubs, cricket clubs, golf clubs, and he would carry favour with the leading lights in those clubs. And he had, you know, one at Yarrawonga and one in the western suburbs and one in South Gippsland and all over the place. And he would carry favour with the leading lights of those clubs who would invest with him. He would make sure that they got some money back out of it and were seen to get the money back out. So, you know, Harry bought a new Jaguar and Charlie got a new swimming pool and they boasted about it to all their friends and neighbours and other golf club members and so on. And so dozens and hundreds of people were infected with this idea that if they gave money, cash money, to Bill Vlahos, he would make it grow for them. And of course, the truth was that he couldn't and he wouldn't. The truth, in fact, was that he wasn't even putting that money on at the races. He was telling them that he had a foolproof system and that he was investing large amounts of money on horse races around Australia and so on. The truth is that apart from some money that he wasted at the races on his own account, he wasn't putting on the syndicate money at all. He was just shuffling it around from here to there, robbing Peter to pay Paul uh, to keep people quiet and meanwhile siphoning some off to be buying horses and all the rest of it. And so we get this situation. It grows and grows and grows like Topsy, where all these people imagine that the money that they'd put in, the 20000 the 30000 the 50000 the 100000 whatever it is, they've put money in. I mean, many of these people must have had spare money. They must have had um, perhaps some black money, cash money, big tradesmen that had done cash jobs. Uh, some of them were foolish enough to go and borrow money to put into the scheme, thinking he was the way they were going to make a killing and pay out their mortgage. And all these people had thrown the money at Bill Vlahos. And the reality is that he's wasting it by buying horses that, by and large, couldn't win enough to pay for themselves, which is the truth of horses. Very few horses win enough to pay for themselves, particularly the expensive ones. And he was punting on his own account. And he was living the high life, living high on the hog. And in fact, there are hair-raising stories of Bill Vlahos 
flying first class to Dubai and places like this and taking with him, you know, strippers from the nightclubs to accompany him to impress potential investors over there and so on and so forth. And when the balloon went up and everybody realised that they'd been had and everybody started to scramble for money, it became like a piranha pool because there were those people, the what I will call the influencers, the presidents of the golf clubs and those sort of people who had got money back from Bill Vlahos and had got a lot of money back from Bill Vlahos and they had spent it on cars and swimming pools and trips and all the rest of it. They, of course, had no interest in producing that money and putting it back in the kitty for those who'd lost so much. And so we had people fighting among themselves. We had people very, very angry and very hostile and very savage because they felt betrayed by those who had made money out of them. And there were even stories and rumours of some people employing outlaw motorcycle gang members to go around and extract money from people that they thought had profited illicitly. So who's Bill Vlahos? Well, it turns out he was a kid who grew up in Paran, in maybe the commission flats in Paran. His poor old mother still lived there in the same place that she always had. Bill had been a bit of a battler, always been a bit of a bright fellow who uh, had an eye for the main chance. He managed to pass himself off, you know, as a psychologist when he really wasn't, or an accountant when he really wasn't. He'd been a handy low-level sportsman. He'd been a a bit of a footballer and a, a useful cricketer. And in fact, instead of playing, you know, pretty good standard of amateur cricket in Melbourne, which he could have played, he would go to South Gippsland and places like that and play as a mercenary. He would take money to play down in some of the country leagues where they needed to uh, bring players in. And he would take, you know, a couple of hundred bucks a week or something to go and put the pads on to play for a country team rather than play for a, a better class of amateur team in Melbourne. And so he'd always been a guy that had his eye open for a quick quid. He'd always been good at making friends with people in sporting clubs, particularly country and suburban sporting clubs. So he knew exactly the sort of people that he could prey on because in a sense he was one of them. When it all came apart, the property at Connawarri near Torquay was sold off. Bill had a big house. I went down and had a look at the property and at the big house. He had a big house over the road between Torquay and Mount Dunede. It was later sold off and uh, Bill went through a, a long protracted legal process. And the short way of putting it is that just lately, just this last few weeks in the spring of 2019, the system finally got around to dealing with him. Along the way, a lot of the people who'd lost money kept chasing phantom money. They thought between them that they were owed some $500 million or some ridiculous figure like that. Of course, there never was $500 million. That was an imaginary figure that people thought they'd won. Bill told them that, you know, they'd put in 20 grand and their 20 grand was now worth 60. And there were a lot of people that were sharing that sort of delusion. And so when people said, what's happened to the, you know, 500 million we're all owed, that money had never existed. They were hypothetical wins on horses that had never been backed and the money was never there. So what was really lost was the money that those people had taken from under their mattresses or out of their banks or from out of their wallet 
and invested with Bill. That was the money that was lost. And that, of course, was millions and millions of dollars, but nothing like the stratospheric numbers that were bandied about. Along the way, a trustee issued federal court claims to recover millions from punters who supposedly won in the fake scheme. There were letters of demand were sent to 37 punters demanding $14.6 million to be paid back to the losers in the club. Well, good luck with that. I don't know who actually uh, shelled out and who got some money back, but I'm tipping not many people got back not much because, as anyone will tell you, you can't get blood out of a stone. And so the latest episode is that this spring 2019, Bill Vlahos has drastically reduced the time that he'll spend behind bars or could spend behind bars after striking what we called in the paper a shock plea deal with the authorities. He originally faced more than 300 charges over some $150 million that was lost to investors in his scam. But in late September this year, he pleaded guilty to just two charges of obtaining financial advantage by deception relating to only $17.5 million. This plea followed months of talks with prosecutors and it means that Vlahos will avoid nine consecutive trials which could have lasted for years and cost many millions of dollars. At the time we're making this podcast, Bill Vlahos's fate is still hanging by a thread. He might end up doing some time in jail. He might not. Who would be sure? All we know is that he has been seen around the Torquay area where he spent most of his time and it is said that he rents a humble home in the Mount Dunede area. So if you're ever at the Torquay pub and you see somebody looking at the races on the TV screen in the corner and having $10 each way on something, have a good look at him. It might be Bill Vlahos, the man we call Dollar Bill. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.